Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 252, From Russia to the Soviet Union, The Transition, Part 1. Last time, we finished the series on how America viewed the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin in 1943. Today, we begin another three-part series discussing the transition from the Russian Empire into the Soviet Union. Finally, we will end it with the change after the collapse of the USSR, where Russia and the other newly sovereign states established themselves. My primary sources for information on the first parts of the series, the transition from Russia to the Soviet Union, include the scholarly work by Nicholas Ryazanovsky and Mark Steinberg. I also use A History of Russia, Caught in the Revolution by Helen Rappaport, and A People's Tragedy, The Russian Revolution, 1891 to 1924 by Orlando Figes. Today's episode will lay the groundwork for the series. We will have you imagine what life was like in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century. Not the life of luxury and leisure that the upper class was leading, but more of an emphasis on the lives of the rest of the country, the 99% who were making do with what little they had. Of course, some people were better off than others, but the majority of the Russian people were struggling mightily. We're going to start in 1905 with the first Russian Revolution. We're beginning here because this is where the first transitions begin. As we know, Tsar Nicholas II was forced to accept the creation of an imperial state Duma. While Boyar Dumas, which were advisory councils existing in Russia from the 10th to the 17th century, and city Dumas were formed across Russia in the 18th century, there were none whose members were voted in by the people that advised the Tsar. The city Dumas were put into existence by Catherine the Great. They were subject to reforms under Alexander II, which was reversed under his son, the reactionary Tsar Alexander III. Nicholas would view the idea of a Duma as being below him, just as his father did. Nicholas retained an absolute veto power and could dismiss the state Duma at any time for suitable reason. He would go on to quickly dismiss the first state Duma in 1906, within 75 days of it being convened. Elections for a second Duma took place in 1907. One of the reasons for Nicholas needing to create at least the illusion of a consultative assembly occurred in the summer of 1905. On August 20th, a massive strike started that lasted until October 13th. It has been called, according to historians Ryazanovsky and Steinberg, quote, the greatest, most thoroughly carried out, and most successful strike in history. They further went on to say, Russians seem to act with a single will, and they made perfectly plain their unshakable determination to end autocracy. In Tsar Nicholas II's October Manifesto, the Tsar promised to introduce civil liberties, provide for broad participation in a new state Duma, and endow the Duma with legislative and oversight powers. The state Duma was to be the lower house of the parliament, 
and the State Council of Imperial Russia was the upper house. But of course, as we know, he had no real intention of giving up any of his imperial power to the Duma. The manifesto had one necessary consequence. It split the opposition to the Tsar. On the one hand, the moderates and liberals felt they got what they wanted. On the other hand, radicals like the Mensheviks, Bolsheviks, and Social Democrats were utterly dissatisfied. This split had the desired effect as it weakened the opposition. It, though, would have very grave consequences for Russia's future. The dismissal of the fourth and final Duma was done by the provisional government. On March 2, 1917, the provisional government decided that the Duma would not be reconvened. Following the Kornilov affair and the proclamation of the Russian Republic, the state Duma was dissolved on October 6, 1917. A provisional council of the Russian Republic was convened on October 20, 1917, as a provisional parliament in preparation for the election of the Russian Constituent Assembly. This was part of the transition from a czarist-ruled country that the provisional government had hoped to make Russia a democracy. I don't need to tell you that, of course, this failed miserably. The provisional government claimed it would organize elections once the First World War ended. Still, Despite the initial agreement in July 1917, they declared Russia a republic and began preparations for elections in the pre-parliament, later named the Council of the Russian Republic. These actions triggered criticism from both the left and right. Supporters of the Tsarist regime saw the declaration of a republican form of government in Russia as unacceptable. At the same time, The left considered the declaration a power grab intended to weaken the influence of the Soviets. Going back to 1905, it was also a year that revealed how weak the Russian military was. Of course, this was due to the disastrous Russo-Japanese War that exposed their weaknesses and overall corruption of the military-industrial complex of the Russian Empire. It is a mirror of what is happening in present-day Russia. Not only was the military not up-to-date equipment-wise, but they also had a system of promotion within their officer corps based on who you knew and what your societal standing was, instead of on skill and leadership qualities. It leaves me wondering about my family and their qualifications to be part of the Russian Admiralty during this time period. Nicholas II took his father's advice to heart and his ultra-conservative counselors when he enacted the fundamental laws on May 6, 1906. It gave the Duma limited power, with the Tsar retaining his autocratic powers. You may be wondering, what does this have to do with the transition from Russia under the Tsar and the Soviet Union? What it did is it laid the groundwork for a radical solution to the people's growing discontent. It would force the massive and painful upheaval that would culminate in the disastrous Russian Civil War and the purges that would take the lives of tens of millions of people under Lenin and especially Stalin. As historian Richard Wortman put it, quote, Rather than accommodating the monarchy to the demands for a civic nation, he redefined the concept of nation to make it a mythical 
attribute of the monarch. As Ryazanovsky and Steinberg noted, quote, the Tsar's insistent attachment to this increasingly archaic political vision, it can be argued, could only have harmful consequences for Russia. This would become even more apparent seven years later, in 1913, when the Tsar held grand celebrations of the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty. As Feiges puts it in his book, quote, the rituals of homage to the dynasty and the glorification of its history were, to be sure, meant to inspire reverence and popular support for the principle of autocracy. But the aim was also to reinvent the past, to recount the epic of the popular czar, so as to invest the monarchy with a mythical historical legitimacy and an image of enduring permanence at this anxious time when the right to rule was being challenged by Russia's emerging democracy. The Romanovs were retreating to the past, hoping it would save them from the future. The interregnum between 1905 and 1913 would be a violent one in Russia. It was almost like it was a glimpse of what the future was going to be. Due to the policies of Prime Minister Peter Strelepin, terrorism was on the rise. In 1906, over 1,400 deaths occurred among police officers, government officials, and innocent bystanders. By 1907, that number rose to 3,000. It would lead to a repression that had not been seen in Russia since the days following the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. It would lead to the execution by hanging of over 1,000 people. The killings would be known as being pulled off with Stolepin's necktie. The Prime Minister also tried to reform the agricultural system, something that was in dire need of change. Unfortunately for the masses, it was such a narrow and ineffectual reform that no one was happy. This would lead to more anger at the government from the lowly peasant to those in high society. It would continue to get worse, but nothing would prepare the Russian people for what was to come. Starting in 1914, Russia's entrance into World War I was a disaster. They were woefully underprepared. It has been estimated that 25% of the men sent to the front line were there unarmed in 1915. While this improved as the years went by, they were supplied with weapons that the Germans and Austrian-Hungarians used, especially when it came to artillery. In 1915, the Russians were promised that if their side won the war, they would take control of Constantinople and the Straits of Bosphorus by agreement with the British and French. This would actually blind the Russian leadership to the incredible suffering of their armies and the deaths of millions of men. The Russian soldier, while underarmed, fought heroically. As a British historian wrote, quote, Despite all defects and difficulties, the Russians fought heroically and made a decisive contribution to the course of the war. But, unfortunately, Nicholas would not take advantage of this to galvanize the Russian people. When the Duma was recalled in August of 1915, they tried to rally the people, but Nicholas remained stubborn in his rejection of the Duma's role in the war effort. 
Despite pleas from the majority of the Duma and the pro-Tsarist state council, Nicholas would not cooperate. To add to his public relations nightmare of his creation, the shadow of Grigory Rasputin's influence on the Tsar and Tsarina would only worsen matters. We saw that the reforms of Stilepin and Nicholas were met with disgust by the peasant population. It was the decline in the gentry class that was even more baffling. It would lead to a more significant disparity between the ultra-rich and the rest of Russia that would fuel the revolutionary fervor. In 1877, the gentry owned 73.1 million desyatin of land in Russia. Diastina is approximately equivalent to 2.7 acres. Ten years later, it had diminished to 65.3 million, and by 1911, 43.2 million. With the emancipation of the serfs occurring in 1861, the land-owning gentry lost the free labor that they were accustomed to. I use the word free rather loosely, as the owner of serfs were required to take care of them, costing them more and more as the years went by. The only way they could do this was to mortgage their land. When the serfs were emancipated, the government compensated the gentry, but most of that money paid off the mortgages held by the wealthier members of society. At the turn of the century, Russia was a backward country regarding industrialization. They would go full-scale in trying to reverse this. And they were pretty successful at first, with a short blip occurring in 1900 with a depression that set in. By the time of World War I, Russian industries were producing large quantities of material. Unfortunately for the people and the workers, it came at the cost of their safety and with low pay. Millions of people poured into the cities from the rural lands to look for work. What they found were circumstances where they would be exploited, with no one to protect them from the factory owners and the foremen who would abuse the workers. This treatment and lack of care by the government would become one of the catalysts of the downfall of the Romanov dynasty. As Fijis puts it, quote, The czarist government was reluctant to better the lot of the workers through factory legislation. This was one of its biggest mistakes, for the buildup of a large and discontented working class in the cities was to be one of the principal causes of its downfall. I want to share a somber section of Orlando Feige's book, A People's Tragedy, one about the plight of working women in Russia. It really hits home as to why the people were so ready to throw the czar out and why the rhetoric from the Bolsheviks sounded like a way out. Quote, By 1914, women represented 33% of the workforce in Russia, compared to 20% in 1885. And in certain sectors, such as textiles and food processing, women workers were in the majority. The factory took a heavy toll on their health, additionally burdened, as so many of them were, with bawling babies and alcoholic husbands. One cannot help but note the premature decrepitude of the factory woman, a senior doctor wrote in 1913. A woman worker of 50 sees and hears poorly. Her head trembles. Her shoulders are sharply hunched over. She looks about 70. 
It is obvious that only dire need keeps her at the factory, forcing her to work beyond her strength. While in the West, elderly workers have pensions, our women workers can expect nothing better than to live out their last days as laboratory attendants. As if things weren't bad enough, Russia's population exploded after the 1861 emancipation of the serfs. That year, Russia's total population was around 73 million. In the next 30 years, it went up to 125 million. And by the time Nicholas II abdicated the throne, it had reached almost 170 million. With this jump in the number of people, the cost of land quadrupled. This made it nearly impossible for the average Russian to have enough land to sustain their family through farming. In 1906, 1910, and 1911, led by Prime Minister Stoilepin, land reform sought to solve the growing peasant-farmer problem. Prior to those years, most of the farms used by the peasants were strips of land that were within what was known as a peasant commune. The land would be overworked, eventually becoming useless. The reforms tried to break up the communes and create peasant proprietors. While the idea was fine, there was little tangible progress in establishing a true proprietorship. Stalin would view those who were successful as kulaks, and therefore enemies of the state. But that is a discussion for next week's episode. When you compare death rates between Russia and countries like Great Britain and France, you see an even starker reality. In 1900, Russia's death rate was 31.2 per thousand, compared to France at 19.6 and Great Britain at 16. Outbreaks of cholera were almost commonplace. Typhoid and typhus were also rampant throughout the Russian Empire especially in the crowded cities. One of the bright spots following the 1905 revolution was an increase in freedom of expression and the press. While not nearly as free as it is in the United States, the idea of preliminary censorship, censoring material before publication, was ended in 1906. This allowed for increased criticism of the Tsar and the government as a whole. Although the publishers of newspapers and other forms of the press had to be somewhat cautious about the severity of criticism, it did open the floodgates. The labor movement, hamstrung for decades, was now more open about the ideas they were fighting for. They could pass out leaflets, make their opinions known in the daily news outlets, and they could hold meetings without fearing retribution from the authorities. While there was an increase in freedom of expression, the government had no problem arresting anyone who espoused the overthrow of the Tsarist regime. The Okhrana was a powerful secret police who regularly round up those suspected of discussing revolution. As you probably remember from many of my past episodes, many Bolshevik leaders were forced to either hide, leave the country, or serve time in the many Russian prisons in Siberia. So far, I've talked mainly about the bad side of what was going on in Russia before the 1917 revolution. But all wasn't so dark and gloomy. 
there was a real blossoming of culture in Russia, and the economy, until the onset of World War I, was beginning to show real signs of life. This time period has been known as the Silver Age of Russian literature. Chekhov, Anna Akhmatova, and Tolstoy were just a few to show off their writing talents. The arts, dance, and music were also blossoming. Nijinsky, Lazorsky, Tchaikovsky, Rimsky-Korsakov, and Borodin charmed audiences with their dance and music worldwide, especially in Russia. Illiteracy was a significant problem in Russia before the dawn of the 20th century. The government was doing as much as possible to alleviate this problem, but with mixed results. Still, there was a concerted effort to educate the Russian citizen. In 1856, less than 1% of the population was in school. Numbering about 450,000, by 1986, though, there were 3.8 million students, or one-third of school-aged children. By 1911, half of the children, or 6.6 million, were enrolled in schools across the country. The literacy rate in 1860 was about 6%. By 1913, it had risen to 28%. But this is a somewhat misleading representation. The literacy rate amongst males in 1897 was around 74%. In the farming communities, it was closer to 17 from the book, A History of Russia, we have this about culture in Russia before the revolution. Quote, the development of Russian culture in the years preceding 1917 suggests certain significant parallels to the political, economic, and social condition of the country. Most striking was the disparity between the few and the many. In the early 20th century, Russia possessed a rich variety of poetic schools and the best ballet in the world, but the majority of the people remained illiterate. They go on to write, quote, But contrary to the Soviet view, this intellectual development did not lead in, incredibly to Bolshevism. More than that, the cultural climate of the Silver Age indicated that the Russian-educated public was finally moving away from the simple, materialistic, utilitarian, and activist beliefs professed by Lenin and his devoted followers. It would appear that the Bolsheviks had to succeed soon, or not at all. I'm going to end today's episode with this paragraph from Ryazanovsky and Steinberg once again. Quote, It has been said that revolutions occur not when the people are utterly destitute, oppressed beyond measure, and deprived of hope, crushing conditions lead only to blind and fruitless rebellions. But when there is growth, advancement, and high expectation, hampered, however, by our archaic and rigid established order, such a situation existed in Russia in the early 20th century, in economics and social matters, as well as in politics. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time when we discuss the Bolshevik side of the transition from the Russian Empire into the Soviet Union. So until then, das vidanya i spasiva za